Just about a year ago, a book by Angela Duckworth, a professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, was released. Provocatively entitled, Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance, this book quickly rose on the nonfiction bestseller charts. Angela Duckworth's thesis was simple, and she marshaled impressive examples to support that thesis. Highly successful people, she claimed, manifest two traits that are missing in those of lesser accomplishment. First, they are very, very clear about what they want, and they are fiercely committed to its achievement. Second, they are willing to work long and hard to reach their identified goal. Taken together, these two traits constitute what Duckworth calls grit. Now, this was hardly a groundbreaking discovery. Five years earlier, another bestseller, Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, made similar claims. Here, Gladwell invoked the 10,000-hour rule, a rule that was first proposed by two Carnegie Mellon academics, Herman Simon and William Chase, way back in the early 1970s. And in their sampling of accomplished chess players, Simon and Chase found that in order to reach the grandmaster level as a chess player, you had to be so preoccupied with the game that you would be willing to invest upwards of 50,000 hours contemplating the various configurations of the pieces on the board. 10,000 hours, they concluded, was the bare minimum needed to achieve mastery in the field of chess. The very best chess players had grit. Simon and Chase didn't give it that catchy and marketable name, however. That had to wait. Subsequent studies of experts in other fields tend to support those findings. Classically trained musicians, for instance, must spend countless hours honing and perfecting their skills. And investigators found that violin students at the prestigious Music Academy of West Berlin all of them were unusually, exceptionally talented. That's how they got into the school in the first place. But what separated the merely good from the truly great was their work ethic, their persistence in practicing. Now, Malcolm Gladwell allows that success isn't always a function of relentless work and determination, grit, in other words. An ability to jump high or to run fast that's pretty much innate. That's, that's a genetic gift. And while practicing as a runner or a jumper is important because the athlete's form does matter, the amount of time required to achieve excellence in these disciplines isn't nearly as great as in technical sports like baseball or golf. Gladwell writes, in complex or cognitively demanding fields, there are no naturals. You've got to have grit. And this is certainly what Helen McDonald discovered when she took on the challenge of training the notoriously skittish goshawk. Although she had worked with other species in the past, although she had sought counsel from old hands in the sport of falconry, McDonald was still unprepared for the weeks and the months it would take to gain Mabel's trust and to establish a working partnership with this impressive raptor. And moreover, as maddening as Mabel's behavior was at times, 
as physically and mentally taxing as it was to put her through her paces, MacDonald knew that she always had to stay absolutely calm, keep her reactivity at bay, because any sign of upset, any sign of frustration on her part would reverse any progress that they had made and perhaps sever completely the bond between the two of them. This was hardly the same as housebreaking a puppy, but MacDonald persisted, and over time, in fits and in starts, human and hawk established a rapport and an understanding of their respective roles. Patience accords with the way things are, the ancient Chinese sage Lao Tzu once said. Forcing a project to completion, forcing it to completion, you will ruin what is almost right. Persistence, perseverance, the patient study application of effort is often necessary for success. Necessary, but not sufficient. Because Helen MacDonald had other advantages that made it possible for her to undertake this project in the first place. She was a college teacher, and thus she was able to devote herself almost exclusively to Mabel's training between college terms. And she was also financially able to afford what could be a very expensive hobby. And this is one of the concerns that some reviewers had with Angela Duckworth's thesis, that, that she oversells this concept of grit while downplaying factors that can also play a significant role in a person's success. Moreover, she seems to suggest that grit is an attribute that's within everybody's reach, and that if a person doesn't have grit, it's just because they don't have the right attitude. Grittiness can be acquired, it can be inculcated, and if we appreciate its importance, we will, like a tiger mom, instill it in our children and strengthen it in ourselves. It's all just a matter of choice. It's all just a matter of willpower, Duckworth suggests. Unfortunately, as David Denby recently observed, children are not born onto a level playing field. Now, it does make eminent sense to develop strategies for helping children become more patient, more persevering, more committed to their chosen discipline. And yet, we should be very careful about making value judgments about any given child. Because some kids, as Denby notes, suffer severe injury long before they reach school age, if they are born into poverty with absent, neglectful, or abusive parents, such youngsters will be exposed to high levels of toxic stress, Denby says. And this, in turn, can cause irreversible damage to the prefrontal cortex, the seat of the individual's executive functions. And when these are compromised, neurologists tell us, a child's capacity for resilience and for perseverance can also be impacted. And much of that damage will already have been done before the child reaches nursery school age. What's called for in cases like this is more support for struggling, overstressed families, a more nuanced approach to children's behavioral deficits and recognition of the limits of any particular developmental approach. Indeed, too much emphasis on grit may induce sharper feelings of inadequacy in a child. Mike Egan is an accomplished musician, a former member of the U.S. Marine Band. He comes on strong, but the point he makes is well taken. He says, anyone who would tell a child 
that a sufficient work ethic is the only thing standing between him and her and world-class achievement. Any parent who tells their child this, he says, should be jailed for child abuse. Even if we were lucky enough to have been spared early childhood trauma, we may need more than grit to reach our goals. Now, David Denby, who writes for the prestigious New Yorker magazine, he committed himself to a career in journalism very early on. He has worked very hard, long, and risen in his professional ranks. But he also admits that he had advantages that many other people lack. My parents carried me for a number of years, he says, as I fumbled along with my journalism career. Now, his parents were not responsible for his success. But Denby does allow that their belief in him and their support of him made it possible for him to persist. Over the years, I've run across many self-help books that claim to have discovered that singular key to leading a successful and flourishing life. But what most of them ignore is the fact that we all exist within a social milieu that can push us forward or it can hold us back. David Denby and Helen MacDonald were committed, persevering people, but they both had these support systems that they could rely upon. Others may not be that fortunate, and grit alone will only carry them so far. The reality, Malcolm Gladwell observes, is this. The amount of practice necessary for exceptional performance is so extensive that people who end up at the top always need help. They invariably have access to lucky breaks or privileges or conditions that make all those years of practice possible. But social and economic factors aside, perseverance, this ability to stay on task over an extended period of time, that's still just one piece of the grid equation. Because there is also that second issue called motivation. Why are some people highly motivated and others not? Well, sometimes an untreated emotional or physical malady will keep us stuck, unmotivated. But the problem oftentimes is uncertainty, a lack of clarity about where we want to go and why we want to go there. And so we need to find our passion in order to be motivated. And once we do, it will feel natural and even joyful to persevere in the service of that passion. Now for some, this passion, this sense of calling or of mission in life comes on very early. By the age of eight or 10, a boy or girl will feel the muse stirring within, or they will find great pleasure in solving mathematical puzzles. The noted entomologist E.O. Wilson, he was an indifferent student at his South Alabama public school. As a youngster, he didn't want to be in the classroom. He wanted to spend as much time as he possibly could out in nature, where he captured and he studied snakes and spiders and all, all kinds of other small creatures that inhabited the, the, the pine barrens in South Alabama. His passion was already clearly in evidence out in the field, and he fashioned that passion into a celebrated career at Harvard University. Now his intelligence, E.O. Wilson's IQ, was above average, he says, but he hardly qualified as a genius based on his IQ. But he did have grit. He had a passion for environmental studies and an indefatigable work ethic. And as a teacher, Wilson has stressed with his students, 
many of whom lack a clear vision for themselves, he stresses the importance of having both, a good work ethic and a passion. Put passion ahead of training, he says. Feel out in any way you can what you most want to do in science or in some science-related profession. Obey that passion as long as it lasts, but then sample other subjects. Be ready to switch if a greater love becomes apparent. As in other choices in life, he says, there is too much at stake here. Decision, hard work based on enduring passion will never fail you. E.O. Wilson's perspective as a natural scientist complements, I believe, the words that I shared earlier from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. If we wait on the Lord, Isaiah assures us, if we trust in and rely on the Lord, we will discover unexpected strength and stamina. We shall run and not be weary. We shall walk and not faint. Now God and the individual's relationship to him or her, that is what concerns the prophet in this passage. But I believe that we could substitute the word passion for God and the passage would make equal sense. Whether or not we enjoy a personal relationship with the divine, there are those passions, a sense of calling that people possess that stir them to purposeful and persistent action. Senator Elizabeth Warren has been passionate, passionate about increasing the accountability of our financial system. John Gardner, the founder of Common Cause, was passionate about clean government and fair elections. Daniel Berrigan was passionate about nuclear disarmament and world peace. These are not sacred causes in the strict sense, but those who embraced them with passion were able to run and not faint, to walk and to not grow weary. Or as John Gardner himself once put it, reform is not for the short-winded. Now, Unfortunately, discerning one's passion isn't always easy. And sometimes it will actually be preceded by a lengthy gestation period. E.O. Wilson suggests that passion is necessary for perseverance, that we will not be sufficiently motivated to work hard until we feel called to the task. Switch gears, he advises, before making too great an investment in any given field. Likewise, David Denby says that we need to be careful where we invest our life energy and not commit ourselves to endeavors about which we still feel ambivalent. Now, I don't believe in banging my head against the wall, but my own experience convinces me that a passion can be acquired very slowly, very incrementally, as well as serendipitously. Because you see, when I decided long ago to begin studying for the Unitarian Universalist ministry, that was 45 years ago, I had no idea whether that choice was going to pan out. As an undergraduate, I had developed an avid interest in spirituality. But growing up, our family only attended religious services sporadically, mostly in a small, lay-led Unitarian fellowship. And all I knew at the age of 21 was that I wanted to continue investigating religion and spirituality and figure out how to make a living in the process. I couldn't imagine doing that anywhere else but in the free, open atmosphere of a Unitarian Universalist faith community. But that was not a career decision that my secularist parents approved of or were willing to support. I was pretty much on my own. I should say Trina, my wife, and I were pretty much on our own. 
Moreover, with so little previous exposure, I was pretty much clueless about the professional ministry. What do clergy people do? I really wasn't sure. So did I feel a passion about this prospective calling? Nah. I was curious, but I was not convicted. And even after three years of graduate study in Berkeley, California, I was still uncertain. And after three more years serving a small congregation in Northwest Iowa, that did very little to further allay my doubts. And so I dropped out of the ministry, went back to school, earned a PhD, dabbled in college teaching, for which I also felt very little passion. So here I was at age 30, still on the fence, nearly penniless after three years of graduate school. And I decided, what the heck, let's give ministry another chance. The second chapter was, in its own way, every bit as challenging and, at times, every bit as disillusioning as the first. But despite my ambivalence, I worked hard, I persisted, and I made progress. Gradually, I gained more confidence. And after eight years in the parish ministry, I finally was able to say to myself, Michael, you know what? You can do this stuff. And I had found my passion. Now, I look back three decades into the distance, and it's clear that I needed grit to accomplish my goals in the ministry. The hard part for me wasn't grit. It wasn't the lack of perseverance, the steady application of effort. That's always been a part of my makeup. It's what helped me succeed as a distance runner in my younger days, able to put in 60 and 70 mile weeks to brave winter blizzards and oppressive summer heat to train for an important race. This discipline requires that you take the long view. Boston Marathon winner Ambie Burfoot once observed, it takes weeks and months to get into shape. Give yourselves time. Don't make hasty or unnecessary mistakes. Remember, he said, life is a marathon. It is not a sprint. I learned that life is a marathon, not a sprint. The same lesson applies to the parish ministry. Treat it like you would a long-distance race. Give yourself time. But could or would I have stuck with this demanding profession on the basis of grit alone? I doubt it. And perhaps the biggest difference the second time around for me was the network of collegial relationships that I developed and the insights I acquired from describing my struggles to other seasoned clergy. I needed that wisdom. I needed that encouragement from others, the elders in my craft that I could turn to for honest feedback. And I did need a supportive life partner who could make me aware of my rough edges and help lubricate our relationships with parishioners. Thank you, dear. <laughs> There's something else I learned, something that is important if you're going to go the distance and what it reflects what it means to have real passion. And that is that the work has to be its own reward. Because what counts in the end isn't success as it's ordinarily understood. What's important is that sense of fulfillment. And in the ministry, how is that acquired? It is acquired by weaving real connections through your persistent effort and your faithful service, as Marge Piercy suggested in our opening reading. True, I have enjoyed success as a professional, but that is not what has kept me in the game for over 40 years. It's the entanglement the recognition that ministry isn't what I do. It's what all of us do together. And that's what sustains the passion. 
And that's why I have persisted. Blessed be and amen.